And so he tells me, gives me the address the, the, for the gym. And he tells me five o'clock, he plays basketball every day. So I fly into Phoenix. I go to the gym. It's five o'clock. I'm there. It's closed. There's nobody there. I go to the. To, sounds, I go sounds, to like a, a, sounds like a good Harlem Globetrotter trick. <laughs> That's right. I, I I call Meadowlark. I said, "Hey, man, I'm at the gym. Um, you know, I'm here." And he said, "Yeah." He said, "I said it's five o'clock, five fifteen. He goes, five a.m." Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, the story of the first African-American signed by the NBA is retold in director Martin Gigi's biographical sports drama, Sweetwater. In the film, the game of basketball is changed forever when the New York Knicks take the initiative to integrate the team with the historic introduction of Harlem Globetrotters player Nathaniel Sweetwater Clifton. In addition to Sweetwater, Gigi's other directorial credits include the feature films Paradise Cove, The Unhealer, 9-11, The Bronx Bowl, Beneath Darkness, and Swing. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Gigi spoke with director Jeremy Kagan about filming Sweetwater. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. And the quote is, we don't make history, history makes us. And I, I really sort of step back from that. And in many ways, looking at your movie thematically, it really is the difference of was history pushing this to happen and therefore Sweetwater happened or did Sweetwater make history? You see the, the weave that I'm speaking to? Uh, no, that's brilliant. And, and I think it's a combination of both. It's a little bit of a hybrid uh, because everything is, uh, there's a, there's a time for everything and, and not to be cliche about it, but th this is, there's a, when I first came in touch with this story, I immediately noticed that there was a hypersensitivity to it. Uh, and this was even in the nineties, uh, where I was doing research and reaching out to whether it was the NBA or some of my contacts, um, in the press, for, in for instance, uh, Pete Hamill was very helpful a New York reporter who had, who had a lot of information to share. And there was always a little bit of this hypersensitivity to it, um, whether it's socioculturally, politically, whatever you want to call it. And perhaps it's funny you should bring that quote up because I was thinking about perhaps that is why it not only was not in the history books prior to when I bumped into it or why it took so long to be able to build the story because there was very little information. And this is in, 19, in April of 1995 um, when I walked into the Basketball Hall of Fame. I'd never been there and Springfield, Mass. And the information there said there were three first black players in the NBA. Earl Lloyd was the first to play. Chuck Cooper, the first to be drafted, Sweetwater Clifton, the first to have a contract. And I thought, well, where is everything else? How did that happen? And why were there three? And we don't know about those three. So I became obsessed with it. And I wasn't sure if I was 
maybe writing a book, maybe make, I had made some documentaries at the time. I had worked for PBS and, and, and I thought, well, maybe it's a documentary. Sure. And the, as I continued to uh, uncover information, it, it was so under the radar. And I thought that this is such a fragile story, such a hypersen- such a hypersensitive. I keep thinking of that word, and I thought, well, cinema is hypersensitive. And I kept thinking that I know I was trying to avoid it. But I had not made a feature film yet in '95. I hadn't directed my first feature until '97. Uh, and as a footnote, that was the, the first feature film. Uh, my ex-girlfriend's wedding was the the last conversation you and I had about movies in terms of you know us having a conversation. So here we are, you know, bookends. But I I felt that that there was something intimate that that existed in the story, and I needed to find out what it was. I come from a DNA where. I'm an information junkie. And uh, also my dad was uh, very nurturing early in my life uh, in terms of passing on knowledge. And my dad, used to, as a musician, used to do uh, educational concerts. By the way, I'm going to jump in. Yeah. When, you, when you discovered that, in fact, Nat was still alive, what was that like? I mean, did you think, did you, when you were in the museum, you may have not noticed the dates, but did you know he was alive? And did you, and was it easy to track him down? That was part of it. I immediately, cause there was, there was no Google. There was no, none of this, you know, there was no cell phones. There was, there was no way of communicating other than going into a, I went to Columbia University's library and I started looking at microfiche. And the first thing I did also is try to find out where are these people? And I tracked down Earl Lloyd who was alive in Tennessee. Again, information junkie, wanting to know, wanting to know. And um, and Earl shared information with me, but he kept pointing a Sweetwater. Earl Lloyd kept saying, yeah, I was there. It was, he didn't remember it as a good experience. And he said, Clifton was the guy that really had an impact on the league in a way that Jackie Robinson might have in baseball. Remember, keep in mind, basketball was not a popular sport yet. This was a, a, a sport, the NBA was, was brand new. And um, that's another reason I think there was not a lot of information. And you'll, you'll dig this. So at one point or another, and I connected with Chuck Cooper's uh, widow, he, Chuck had passed away. At one point or another, uh, I was introduced to uh, now Commissioner Adam Silver. Uh, and Pete Hamill facilitated some information for me. And Adam brought it to Commissioner Stern. At the time, this was like 99, 2000, 2001, there was no interest to be involved in this project at the time. And I understood all the reasons. What you just brought up, Martin, again, pointing at Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote. The, there wasn't enough information, but there was a history. And, the, and, and you know... <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was making all the president's men. It's just, it was all about information, right? Or if I was just telling a, a, a historical story that's in the lymph nodes of our history of our of our country. And I connected to Sweetwater's daughter. I found her in Chicago. She was living in the same house as Sweet that Sweetwater lived in in Chicago. And she then introduced me to Eloise Saperstein, Abe Saperstein's daughter. Uh, 
Then I was introduced to Metal Ark Lemon, whom I visited in Arizona. All right, I'm gonna stop again. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you actually saw, because I remember my first time, because Metal Lark, of uh, uh, watching the Harlem Gold Trouders. Do you remember what that your experience was? Because it was like magic. These were these were people who made that ball this small and could put it anywhere. <laughs> I'll tell you the 30-second version of Metal Lark. I'm on the phone with him. I'm here in LA. Uh, we I tell him that I want to tell the Sweetwater Clifton story, and I'm I'm building this this screenplay, and that it, and I think it's a feature. And he said, well, I got, yeah, we have to meet. And come on, why don't you come out? And, 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 you know, I heard that you're, you know, I told him I play ball. He said, let's play some ball. And so he tells me, gives me the address the, the, for the gym. And he tells me five o'clock, he plays basketball every day. So I fly into Phoenix. I go to the gym. It's five o'clock. I'm there. It's closed. There's nobody there. I go to the to sounds, a, I go sounds, to like a, a, sounds like a good Harlem contract trick. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I call Metalark. I said, hey man, I'm at the gym. Um, you know, I'm here. And he said, Yeah. He said, I said, it's five o'clock, five fifteen. He goes, five AM. So I stayed the, the night and the next morning. <laughs> And I, when I tell you that he could still, uh, you know, in his 70s, throw the ball from half court and make that shot. Yeah. Now, again, the connective tissue is important for, for, for the reason of how this got, I think, came to fruition. As a kid growing up in New York City, when as an Argentinian, as a Hispanic Jewish kid in New York City, I would go down to the park. And in that park, we played basketball and there was... When we played basketball, there was no judgment. The game had this spiritual effect and this ability to create a, a level playing field, at least when I was a kid in New York. And I want, and I was, oh, my dad, when, going back to my dad, and, and this, this all connects, my dad, on my birthday, every year when we lived in Manhattan, would take me to the garden. And one year I saw Harlem Globetrotters, one year I saw... Uh, Bruce Lee doing an, uh, uh, a demonstration in one year. I saw the Knicks and I saw Walt Frazier and Earl Pearl Monroe dribble the ball behind their back and be creative. And I thought, man, that's, that's what life's all about, right? Creativity, art, art in sport. And so I needed to know more about this individual, Sweetwater Clifton, who was a trotter and then came to the league and I wanted to know about his game. I had an instinct that said, there's something more than just, you know, a civil rights or a, a, a story about our, our evolution from racism. And um, the, do you know how Abe decided to do this, Abe Saperstein? What, got, what motivated this guy to put together these remarkable athletes? Saperstein was definitely a unique character. Um, he was a trailblazer. He was a grand, obviously, you know, P.T. Barnum of, of show business. And, and he fell in love with the, um, with Spoy Five, which was an all black team in the 1920s. He saw them when he was a kid. He, he, he fell in love with them and he decided at one point or another that he wanted to be somehow involved with them, help them get more gigs, so to speak. And he morphed that particular team into this dream he had, the Harlem Globetrotters. He envisioned this team traveling the planet, 
And that was his contribution. Was he a player at all? From what I understand, he was he was a pretty horrible ball player. Yeah. Got it. All right, let's get into the movie. Um, essential question. The bus. Where did you find the bus? <laughs> that bus was a pain in the turkis while we were filming, by the way. All that smoke that you saw and the sounds that it made, it actually did all of that. Uh, that was no visual effects, no special effects, no sound effects. It was it was the bus we had found. Um, and how did you find it? Thank, well, uh, our transportation ca captain, uh, James Quattrochi, said, I know exactly where the bus is that you're looking for. And he took us out to uh, North Hollywood. And sure enough, there's this bus. And then our brilliant production designer, Jack Taylor, who had been attached to this project for years, um, you know, he had done his research and converted it. And, you know, it was uh, an actual 1940s diesel vehicle. In terms of talking about Taylor's like work and the production design, since you're creating a period and you've got that, you know, sort of the... It, spaces like where Eric Roberts is and you've got uh, the barn where they play. Um, how are you finding these locations where it was anything built? And if it was, what did you build? So at one point or another, Commissioner Silver was able to champion the project into the NBA. And now I'm going from 97, 98, 99 into 2005 and 2006. And uh, Stern became comfortable with the concept, and they connected me to their historians in the NBA. And it was a woman, you'll love this, there was a woman named um, Zelda, Zelda Spol Spolstra, who was the secretary to Commissioner Podoloff. This is the one that Richard Dreyfus plays. Correct, yes. to Richard Dreyfus' character. She was his secretary in the, in the 1950s, and she was still at the NBA in the 2000s. They had made her a historian and she had a lot of wonderful information, including the minutes to the team owners meetings. So what we're hearing in those actually rather powerful scenes are actually things these people did say. They are direct. Uh, the Let's just say the arc of each one of those team owner meetings are all taken verbatim from the team owners uh, minutes from those and she she shared those with me and she used to say things to me like oh Ned Irish wouldn't talk like that he was my, and she knew the character of these individuals and that gave me that's where I found that, that's where I realized there's a story here God I'm moving past that to your filmmaking because there is a story here you've given it to us now to be able to make it making period pictures is a challenge that are expensive and finding your locations talk about some of those places because particularly for example that barn or the traveling stuff where were you where did you go that's fun cool so the hypersensitivity right of cinema and we know this is is that the lens is craving emotion and truth. And uh, I knew that that was contingent on an, an unconditional dedication to the, the pride that our production team took for authenticity. And that was the mantra. Not only the dialogue, not only the costuming by Tiffany, but not only the uh, production design, the art direction, the vernacular. Everybody took this extraordinary pride. They made life easy for me. It wasn't easy to you know work on it for 28 years, but we had crates of information we had pictures. We wanted to, you'll get a kick out of this. Our production designer actually matched the wood grain 
from the 1950 garden in the recreation of the garden. And the ball was the same, you know, the older uh, uh, texture of leather. Now, where did you create the garden? At uh, stage, it's, was it stage 14 or stage 20? Stage 14 at Warner Brothers. We, we, we created the garden to scale and camped out there. And so that, now that's, you're on, you're on a set here for other things like, for example. The barn, the barn yeah. was at the Disney ranch and. Um, and the traveling shots in that area? All, also all done uh, in, in, in and around the Disney ranch as well. Because it gave you a variety of looks. Yes, it did. We, we, we wanted to have a little bit of that up, you know, upstate New York, Hudson Valley feel. Um, and, and that gave our wonderful cast a playground, a, an authentic playground to really get, you know, to feed the lens with emotion. Well, let's talk about your cast. Um, Everett is your star. How did you find him? Uh, three to four weeks prior to filming. Uh, you must have been anxious. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, Jeremy, I, had, I knew that, that we would find the perfect actor for the role. There were many people who had reached out. Why did out. you just say that? That's an amazing statement to say. Why did you know that? A lot of the, the, in the way in which this journey has taken place, there is so much kismet beshared and meant to be aspects of it along the way. It just took time to marinate. And I had this feeling that it, it was... There was uh, call it guardian angels. Uh, there was a spirituality to this to this journey. Um, so there was a part of you that fe felt, um, you know, assisted, if you will, by the energies to make it happen. So it didn't go make you take that dive of anxiety. Correct. In fact, um, the day before I got the call from Tim Moore, our producer over at Malpaso, that he had read the script and loved it. The day before that. I had said to my wife, Dahlia, who also was a producer on the picture, I said, you know what? I'm going to go shoot this film with my iPhone. I've got, I, know a lot of, I know a lot of people who've played basketball. <laughs> I have a lot of friends who are wonderful actors. We will do this. We'll take it to uh, slam dance. We'll, you know, the, li the, the life I have lived as an independent filmmaker is you make your movie. And um, came to, I went over to the lot, sat down with Tim. I originally sent him the script in November of 2019. Then the pandemic hit. In, tw in November of 2021, he called me two years later and said, hey, I, 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 you know, let's go do this. Got it. So let's go talk about casting. What's your process? How did you find it? The first thing I did is I called everybody that I had uh, promised roles to over 25 years. <laughs> Does that include Richard? Is that to Kevin Pollack? Are these, are these people you promised? <laughs> Oh, goodness. Yes. Uh, well, uh, Kevin, yep. Kevin was one of the originals. Uh, Kevin Pollack and I had met and, and shared time in 2005, 2006, and he committed. And Richard Dreyfus uh, was 2008, 2009. Um, and By the way, this becomes, so I, this becomes, before you even tell us how you found Everett, this becomes an incredible lesson for anybody in perseverance. Because so many filmmakers after a certain length of time, decide, I guess it's not supposed to happen. And clearly, that's not the history. That's not your history, and that's not the history of this project. This project wanted to happen. But your perseverance, obviously, for 20-plus years and having been able to get it to happen is admirable and exemplary for all of us. Now, tell us how you cast him. Thank you. This is Everett. Thank you for that.
three weeks away from shooting. You don't have Sweetwater. Don't have Sweetwater Clifton. I had had Sweetwater Clifton in the past, but those particular actors were not not available. I had many calls from what I would call, you know, usual suspects, friends of mine from the acting community and basketball community, NBA players, ex-NBA players, retired players. We had hundreds of submissions and we looked and we watched and we, we, and it just didn't feel right. And then I saw this self tape of an individual who was dressed like a player in 1950, um, was playing the style of basketball. He had done his homework that was played not only in 1950, but that Sweetwater Clifton had played. So his self-tape had him on a basketball court. On a basketball court, making the moves that some of our research had showed Sweetwater had created, uh, had been birthed with Sweetwater, the palming of a basketball with Sweetwater Clifton, the finger roll came from Sweetwater Clifton. Certain moves on the court came from Sweetwater Clifton, and he was doing them. And another one of our producers, Darren Mormon, said, have you seen this video? I said, yeah, I did. I said, but I, I we need to see it. So then we asked for so him. So wait a minute. Yeah. He's, this video has him playing. Does it also have him, quote, acting? It didn't. So you just saw him as a visual. This is, Sky looks right and plays right, but that's it. Correct. And Why? there was something about his movement his physicality was very true, was very pure right. to that era. Very hard to find. The long legs, the arms, you know, yeah, no tattoos. He also does those fabulous jump moves when he runs out right court. On. Exactly. So that's what I saw him do in the, in the tape. And we reached out to him. He did a self-tape of the locker room scene when he is saying, I don't belong in the NBA. I belong on the streets. And he did that scene in the self-tape. He threw sweat on himself. He went into a locker room and he self-taped it. And it was, it, was a, it was a transport in time, the way he spoke. He had done his homework. He had, he, he had somehow found that Sweetwater had Arkansas roots and then Chicago. And he put all that into the vernacular. Anyway, and reading this to say he made it into the top 12. And then, you know... Like in, we all know how to pack, you know, packaging movie, you want a star, but we had already a, an ensemble cast. Right. We had Dreyfus and, and Pollock and Kerry Elways and Eric Roberts and, and, and everybody else. And we Did thought, you have, okay. Uh, uh, Jeremy as well? We had Jeremy. Uh, he was, uh, Jeremy and I had met many years back. Um, and so he, you had a, he said, sat around and waited as well. So you had a really serious supporting cast, but you didn't have your lead. Didn't have the lead. And you had 12 candidates. Yes. And uh, we brought three in to, to, that were the finalists based on the tapes that we saw. And um, I remember Everett Osborne, the, my first experience with him that told me, oh, this is, this is our guy. I think this is our guy. A little bit of a, but I felt it was when he walked onto the Warner lot, I was standing outside of the casting office and he came up to me and said he had just shared some time with my son and talked basketball with him. And he said, your son, you know, is, is, a, is a unique, very special person. And he had this humanity about him. He wasn't telling me with that on that. Blah, blah. And we connected on a, on a very pure level. He talked about a little bit about his life 
and what basketball and the art of creativity means to him and how he he had the he had the the ability to be open with me now did you you had these three candidates yep. obviously related to him on a level that we'll say is organic and or in some way the the famous idea of chemistry between people yeah did you ask him to read for you? I did. And, and you know, the one line he said to me before he walked in, that this, there was this pure connection, Jeremy, was when he said to me, man, I've heard what you've been through. He said, I feel a similar calling. Again, a beautiful, very spiritual thing to say to, to the director who, you know, <laughs> I was thinking, okay, that's a nice way to butter me up <laughs> for sure. We went into the room and he took, this casting, this callback, and he took over the room. I mean, he literally started making all the moves, sat down next to the producer, sat down next to the casting director, pretended she was Jeremy, and started doing this uh, activity from an emotional, physical place. I'd never seen an audition like that. And... and did, which scene, by the way, were you doing? Do you remember? He did uh, one of the bus scenes uh -huh. where... He is confronting Saperstein about the uh, payment. Yep. And then he did the locker room scene again. And the other actors that were in the, as our finalists were, were fine actors too. But again, I cannot explain it. You probably could ask anybody on the set that was something about this guy. All right. Question for you. Yep. Um, in terms of when, for example, he's doing this audition for you now and actually doing, you know, if you were reading and performing for you. Do you, and I'm, this may apply to anybody, but I'm just as I'm wondering about your process in casting. Do you redirect them? Do you give them something else to do so you can find out whether in fact, and particularly in his case, because he's got really no experience. Brilliant question and you read my mind. So 99% of what I saw him do made me feel like this is going to make my job so much easier. This guy is just bringing it. And he's also into the history of, um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, call it the fiber of our nation. And we talked about music and the parallel with the blues and how that has in, you know, permeated the history of, of our nation and music. It's all, all comes from the black culture. And, you know, that's as a musician, that's the world I came from. So he comes, he, so on the set, first day of shooting, we're filming the locker room scene. So you may not have redirected him in that room. No. All right. Keep, so you, you just yeah. knew this is your man. Go. Yeah. Keep going. And, you know, my, my, my process is to use the script as a map. And, uh, you know, in, in an architectural way, I'm op always open to all possibilities. And so it's so, your first day. Yep. And he's on, he bring, he, we, I say, let's not, let's, I said to the, to the guy, it was Jeremy and, and Everett. And I said, let's, let's not rehearse it. Let's, let's just see what this feels like. I had one camera. I went one camera on that first day and I was on Everett and we shot that scene and there was nothing that I would have done differently. Remember, I have had this script. I've seen this movie for 28 years in my mind every frame that's then that can be a double-edged sword and he captured all the emotional beats the tempo i didn't have to make any adjustments and i remember jeremy piven came up to me after that first take and he said okay 
I, I got to bring my game, my A game. And he, Everett did that in his basketball playing too. What was the he, made, he made a lot of first takes. Those shots, sorry to interrupt, the shot in the barn. Take one. You mean you're talking about the long shot? The basketball the stuff was all him. That's there were no stuntmen. He was the ball player. He played. I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen an athlete who can act the way he can what and an the, actor who can play ball. What sport was the, the roughest scene for you as a director? The roughest? The roughest scene. <sighs> oh, you can, okay. you can tell both of those. I, at least two went through your head. <laughs> the team owners. The second team owner scene uh, was a challenge. There was um, uh, there was improvisation, and oh, there was also what we needed to get from the page. And um, we only had one camera that day, and uh, it was it was it was rough because I knew that I was getting more than I needed, but a lot of things that I didn't need and I was sometimes going into a different direction than the story. And I'm also hypersensitive to the partnership with the NBA and, and, and uh, staying true to the facts. And, you know, some of the things that were being said in there were, were, were not what was co correct. And I wanted to keep it fact. I wanted to keep it historical, historically factual. Uh, the, the other was uh, shooting the basketball. Uh, we, we, as I was mentioning to you earlier, we, we, on action one, I let the basketball players play. And on action two, they played the sequence from the script. And that was uh, still challenging because sometimes the ball doesn't land where you want it to. The camera is not there. And those were challenging, really challenging shots to get it right. It's interesting. I was thinking about in that game, the missed shots. Um, where uh, the other team, the ball is just on the edge. And I'm figuring, how did they, because it doesn't look like a bad shot. It looks like what a missed shot is. So I will tell you, I will share with you that the, the last 22 minutes, the basketball sequence, um, a lot of it was created in the final rewrite in the editing room. Uh, it was not necessarily the way that that game was written, but it was the way it was played on set. So we went with what we had captured. And when you say that, all of the all those technicals, that was part of your script, right? Correct. Yeah, the technicals were, and the dialogue was spot on uh, in terms of capturing. I would after shooting the basketball, I had mics on everybody, and after shooting the basketball, we went in and we did all our coverage to get the story. The group that plays the the, the trotters in the beginning. Um, we have a little time here, so I'm going to, this is unfortunately going to be our last question, but I'm interested, how did you put them together and how did they train so that they could in fact do the same numbers that the Harlem Globetrotters did? How did you find that group? Over the years and in my research, I connected with Globetrotters. Metal Art connected me to Curly Boo Johnson. He connected me to Kevin, uh, special K Daly and so on and so forth. And so I started implementing into the script the routines that were done back in the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s. And th three of the players on that team in the movie are actual Globetrotters. Got it. Well, listen, you've taken us on quite a ride and I am, you brought history to our present and made it us feel it. So thanks so much for making this movie, Martin Gigi. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. 
We'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 